Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. First John highlights three points of direction, three characteristics of what we would call basic biblical Christianity. It's a very simple message today. Uh, directing it specifically, or maybe mostly, to, to the church. Verse 1, he talks about who Jesus is. Verse number 2, he talks about what Jesus has done. In verses 3 through 6, what Jesus expects from us based on who he is and what he's done. John begins in verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. What is the purpose of the book of 1 John? These things I write to you so that you, what? Listen, we're not going to, this is going to be a long sermon if we, that you may not sin. The purpose of 1 John is is to write that they may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Based on 1 John chapter 2, who is John talking to? My little children. He's writing to those who have said yes to Jesus Christ. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to those who have accepted Jesus through his particular ministry. The reason that he writes is because he loves them and he wants the best for them and he expects their holiness. But if anyone does sin, he wants to give them assurance that there is an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now you may remember the story that is recorded in John chapter Eight, actually the very last couple verses of chapter 7 but into John chapter 8 about the woman caught in adultery and I'll just paraphrase that really quickly there is a woman who is caught in adultery and, and they bring her to Jesus and they throw her to the ground and they say teacher this woman has been caught in the act of adultery now in the law of Moses we are commanded to stone such a woman but what do you say? what do you say? Jesus, And they're, they're setting him up to test him. We, scripture says that, that they're testing him. And Jesus offers a brilliant reply that is both faithful to the just and merciful intent of the law of Moses. What does Jesus say? Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And it says one by one they dropped their stone. Jesus is saying that they are all, we are all worthy to be stoned to death. So so notice that. It's very important. Let he who is without sin, in other words, we are all worthy to be stoned to death. So those of you who are not worthy to be stoned to death, stoner. And one by one, they chose the merciful intent of the law for themselves. But the legal intent of the law for others. Now they are right. Moses' law does say this, but they are not being merciful. In fact, when Jesus commends the Pharisees for tithing, even down to the mint, down to the spices and their spice rack, he says they have forgotten the weightier laws. Mercy. And love. One by one, the stones drop to the ground, and one by one, these very righteous, pious men walk away. And when Jesus and the woman is left there alone, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? What does she say? No one, my Lord. Jesus doesn't say you're innocent, he actually knows that she is guilty. 
but neither do I condemn you. Guilt without condemnation. And he said, go and sin no more. The very next verse is verse 12, and Jesus turns to his disciples, and he says those very, very famous words, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I can't think of a better illustration to go back over now into 1 John chapter 2 to illustrate these three things. First, the gospel of John highlights the sinfulness of all mankind. From the most devout Pharisee who drops his stone to the adulteress who drops to her knees. Second, John highlights the scope of God's mercy. That it applies to everyone even if you are guilty of the death penalty. Worthy of the death penalty. Jesus doesn't condemn. And third, John highlights Jesus' righteousness, his, his lightness, his holiness, the necessity of those who follow him to walk in that light or to use Jesus' own words, go and sin no more. There's an expectation at the end to live a life free from the dominion and the domination that sin demands. So here in 1 John, we find the same three things in a different order, of course. But we have John's versions of Jesus' go and sin no more. This is why he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you, what is it? May not sin. Sin no more. You see this mix of John's fatherly tenderness, his pastoral comfort, and also his apostolic authority. But he wants these young growing followers of Jesus, his spiritual children in the faith, those that are under his oversight to avoid sin and sinning. It's a very important part of our faith that I think kind of lost off of our radar. The importance of holiness, the importance of living righteously before God. And I, I'm going to do, we're going to be a little technical today. So some of you love that and some of you just gloss over it. And you can get the Cliff's Notes uh, as we wrap some things up. But this, this word, the word sin in this context is in the aorist tense. Now, I know that you don't care or know what that is, but I want to compare that to present tense, where present tense means something that is happening and it's always happening from now on. Present tense means that it's a continuous action. It's happening now and continually. Aorist tense means that it's a fixed moment in time. It's a very important delineation because in English, it's not possible to know that. But in the original language, as God intended for us to have it, it's very important to recognize that when he says go and sin no more, he's talking about sin events. So some people would say, you know, we have been rescued from sinfulness. True. We are being transformed to be like Jesus. But that's not exactly what John is referring to in this particular context. He's talking about sin events, not sinfulness, but sin events. Those little besetting things that we allow into our lives. Those things that we used to feel guilty over, used to feel shame over, used to process and know wasn't right, but now we just kind of gloss over them. They've become scars. We've become numb to the reality of them. Oh, yeah, we're still followers of Jesus Christ, but we sin. And we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We judge ourselves based on mercy, but not justice. So what John is saying, and it's very important, is that I'm writing these things to you so that you can get sin, little sins, those small sin events eradicated from your life. Quit giving place to them because they build, they mount, they swell, they pile up. And you try to deal with them a little bit, but you just swap them under the rug and maybe nobody will ever find out. Nobody will ever know. Meanwhile, you're carrying a bag, baggage of garbage around on your back. You know how hard it is to walk after Jesus with garbage on your back that he actually died for already? 
It's a very important picture for us to, to see how John is talking to these loved ones that he's writing to. So I think it's important. We talked about this a little bit last week, but let's talk a little bit. Well, what is sin? People hear that. It's a very negative word. It's the Greek word hamartia. And, and the word actually means that, that to miss the mark is the actual literal meaning of it. To miss the mark. It means that in these terms that God has a standard. God has as his standard his perfection, his holiness, his righteousness, everything that God is, his his character, his essence, his expectations, his, sum it all up, his glory. In fact, it's why he says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is God's standard. That is the bullseye, God's glory. Every time, God's glory. Every time, every thought, every word, pinpoint accuracy to the glory that God deserves. If you have fallen short, you are a sinner, one who has missed the mark. So based upon God's glory, if you have a, and, and I, do, I do believe that, that we have maybe even trained people to, to have a uh, more acute, view of sin than we do of God's glory. And I, I intend to shift that because I'm convinced that if you can see God's glory, sin will be less of an issue in your life. But if you see only your sin, you're probably going to live in the dumps most of your Christian experience. So if we have a high view of God's glory, you will have a high view of sin. If you have a low view of God's glory, you'll have a very low and a high tolerance of sin and a low sensitivity to it in your life. And I think that's where, you know, and I don't want to get all preachy, but I think that's kind of where our Christian culture is in America, is this tolerating sin because we don't tolerate the glory of God. We don't see him high and lifted up. We don't sense his calling and his purpose. We don't, call, we don't sense his righteousness in our life, his higher calling. But the more sensitive that we grow, Toward Jesus' advocacy of us, the more sensitive we become to sin. And I think I said this last week, but I, I want to I say it again. Being a Christian doesn't imply that we're perfect. Being a Christian implies that we know we're not. But we know what to do with that imperfection. I'm under no illusion that Christians are ever going to be able to walk in perfection. In fact, John knows that too. But that is the standard, the glory of God. But when we miss that standard, what do we do? When we miss the glory of God, what do we do? But any if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's the same balance we find in the story of the woman caught in adultery. We find this very serious, realistic view of sin, but it's also filled with mercy. I want you to write this down. Sin is inevitable. Sin in your life, for the Christian or not, sin is inevitable. But it's not excusable. Just because you know that it's inevitable doesn't give us the right to excuse it. And that's what most of us will do. Well, after all, I'm just a, just a sinner. It's what sinners do. Sin, we give ourselves a pass without reminding ourselves of the glory of God and walking in holiness. It's one of the things that allows us to continually get tripped up. Sin is inevitable, but it's not excusable, but it is always forgivable. There's not a sin that can't be forgiven, except one. We'll talk a little bit about that. But all of our sin, both before our initial confession in Jesus. I was saved and baptized when I was seven years old. I have sinned more as a Christian than I ever did before I was a Christian. Being a Christian doesn't mean that I'm any better than anybody else. It just means that I probably struggle with it and should struggle with it in becoming more and more like Jesus, aware of it, not glossing over it, 
But I've learned the more that I focus on sin, the worse I feel. The more I focus on God's glory, the less I deal with sin. The more time I spend in his word, the less I'm focused on the things that trip me up. I think that's true for all of us. I'm still learning. But all of our sin before our initial confession to Jesus and after is forgivable. Not because of us, but because of Jesus' constant intercession and advocacy. Verse 1 illustrates this. Jesus is called our advocate. In the Greek word, I'm going to give you a little Greek uh, this morning, okay? Because it's important. This word is called paraclete. Or in this particular context, it's parakletos. It's a different form of that. But paraclete, I remember this word. It's a root word, actually, in Greek. It means its own thing. But I always remembered paraclete because para is like parallel. It comes alongside, right? You know what I mean? Parallel, it comes alongside. That's what the word para means, come, to come alongside. Cleat is some kind of a, a, a protrusion that's used to grip things. So you might put a cleat on the wall and hang something on it. Or you might wear shoes with cleats so that you can grip, right? It's something that provides grip and traction uh, to keep things together. And that's exactly what this word means. Paraclete means something that comes alongside of you and kind of grips you together. This is the word that is used of the Holy Spirit when, during Jesus' ministry, when Jesus is comforted, when Jesus is encouraged, when Jesus is moved, it is the parakletos that comes alongside of Jesus and reinforces him. One who descends down, who lights upon him as the dove did uh, several occasions. This is, this is the same word that we find ministering to Jesus. Jesus now uses, and he even said in John 15, when I go, I will send a parakletos to you. And he will testify of me. I think it's John 15, 26, actually. He will testify of me. So now we find out that John says Jesus is that parakletos. He is the one who comes and attaches himself to us and provides the grip and traction in our life as we are walking toward Jesus. Jesus is doing the work if we will surrender ourselves to him. Here in 1 John, Jesus functions as that parakletos. Now remember, this is written to believers. Very important. This is written to believers. This truth is not universal. This truth does not belong to everyone. This truth belongs to anyone who claims to walk with Jesus Christ. Jesus is like a defense attorney, testifies before the throne of God in favor of us regarding our sin and its due punishment. Jesus is the one when we stand in the presence of God. It is Jesus who comes alongside of us and attaches himself to us and defends us. But not because you're worthy, but because of his work, because of who he is and what he has done. Jesus is not our accuser. Sometimes I think we see Jesus as this looking for every problem. Listen, because of what Jesus has done, he is the one who moves alongside of you on your worst day. When you are guilty, it is Jesus who comes alongside of you and puts his arm around you, attaches himself to you and says, grip on. This is not an accuser. Jesus doesn't serve as our judge right now. Jesus serves as our advocate. To think that Jesus is angry and mean and every time you sin, he's ready to kick you aside is to do damage to everything that Jesus is. Jesus loves you. He loves the glory of the Father. He loves helping you hit by his character, the center of God's glory. And you can only do that with him. Jesus loves to come alongside you in court. In fact, in Revelation 12, verse 10, it says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brothers have been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. 
It is Satan that is the accuser. He brings everything that we've ever done before our eyes and before the eyes of the Father to accuse us. But Romans 8, 34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Intercede means to fall in with, to light down upon. So when Satan accuses Jesus' followers, Jesus is for you. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, Jesus is for you. And when you're living in sin, it is Jesus who comes alongside you, the Holy Spirit testifying of who Jesus is to remind you of the glory of God. And that is called conviction. But when you're feeling guilt and shame, guilt and shame looks down this long, dark tunnel at nothing. The difference between guilt and shame? Guilt says, this is what you've done. It's all you're capable of. How many of you have ever felt guilty? Satan brings different things in your life into your mind's eye and you remember these terrible things you've done and you're like, you know what? I'm just going to pretend that I'm not that, but that's how I identify as my worst day. Anybody? And shame isn't what you've done. Shame is who you are. Shame speaks to your real identity. Shame says this is who you are and it's all you'll ever be. And so everybody else might be fooled, but you know when you're in silence and you're laying there at night, you're just constantly reminded of who you really are. And sometimes you get terrified that people are going to find out who you really are. It's not God's voice. So often we think, oh, God must hate me. God must hate me because of what I've done, because of how I feel about what I've done and how I feel about who I am. No, no, no. Jesus comes alongside of us. It's the accuser. It's Satan himself that parades your worst moments across your eye when you're trying to get rest in Jesus. It's Satan who keeps you paralyzed in your spiritual growth because he has the same sound and intonation of his voice reminding you of every bad thing you've ever done. And you might mistake that, but what Jesus will do is he will show you the same tunnel and at the end of that tunnel there is light at the end. Yes, this is what you've done. Yes, this is who you are, but look what you can be and do if you follow me. Here is hope. Light. Follow me and you won't walk in darkness. You'll walk in light. Jesus has dealt with every Sin. That's what he says here. Every sin. And sometimes you may get away with sin's consequences on earth. Sometimes there may be some of us in here who have done things that you got away with it. You got away with the consequences. Don't mistake that as God's permission. We now understand you may have got away with it. And I'm just going to tell you, that's God's mercy. Don't mistake God's mercy for God's permission. God's mercy allows us to learn holiness, to learn his character. But Jesus has paid the eternal consequences of every sin for all time. The ones that trip us up, things we allow in our life, and the things that we're not even aware of in our life because of our low view of God's glory. So Jesus is our advocate. He's not a public defender. No offense to all of our public defenders. Jesus isn't just the one you can afford. He's, at the end of verse 1, the righteous one. You got the best one. You got the best one. It's a tremendous thought to think that Jesus, because of his love for the the Father, died for our sins. But what a far more tremendous thought to know that Jesus has never, not one time, lost interest in in you. There's never a thought, never a moment, never a moment in your existence where Jesus isn't walking alongside you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you for those that are following after him. When Jesus was on the cross and he said it is finished, he was referring to his redemptive work, but his intercessory and advocacy work is just beginning. i just thinking about, like you ever done something that uh, somebody forgave you 
but you know, like you, you might you might be forgiven like legally, but you know, relationally, there's a grudge. Like sometimes, like even with your with your spouse, sometimes you're know, like, there's this. Okay, well, I'm going to forgive you, but there might be some coldness for a few minutes until there's a warming back up again. Right? Just know this. Jesus never once forgives with a grudge. Never forgives with a grudge. I just want you to hold on to that for a moment. Jesus isn't upset that he forgives you. It is his goodwill. It is his pleasure to come alongside well, I know you don't want to hear me say this, but let's look at verse 2. <laughs> he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The scene shifts. We move from the courtroom to the temple. From Jesus being our advocate who speaks in our favor in the presence of God despite our sin to himself being the very propitiation or atoning sacrifice. For our sins. He is the priest and he is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The Greek word here translated propitiation is used only two times in the entire New Testament. Both of them John uses in the book of 1 John. Both usages of this word is found in this letter. In this verse and also in chapter 4 verse 10. But this word is found in a lot of other ancient Greek texts. So if you take like the full meaning of this word, what it means is the removal of God's wrath. Jesus is the propitiation of our sin. What does that mean? It means that he has removed, the Bible talks about the wrath of God hanging over the heads of those sons of disobedience. What Jesus has done is he has removed the wrath of God off of us. What a beautiful picture that is. I want us to really process that. Jesus is the removal of God's wrath for those who live for him. If you're not living for Jesus, the wrath of God still abides upon your head. You're still guilty because you're not trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So what is taught here is that Jesus' death was and is sufficient and I want you to get this. Before John said that you may not sin, talking about this sin events, these little, these little things that we trip over, here it's different. Here it is present tense. He's talking about not sin events. He's talking about sinfulness. Not only has Jesus, not only does he allow us not to get tripped up, but he also removes that nature from us. He is removing the nature of sinfulness giving us the freedom to walk in his nature and not our own. So he has removed God's wrath from anyone who would receive him. Beautiful picture of what Jesus has done is the propitiation for our sin. A few weeks ago, some of you got to meet a, a new friend of mine and uh, he stayed with us for a few days and uh, spoke at a Wednesday night event that we had here and uh, hope that you had a chance to, to meet him. Wow, what a dude. This guy's been shot at, imprisoned. He's a church planner. We're sending, we're sending missionaries, or church actually sending missionaries. Uh, we're, we're working to uh, encourage brothers and sisters in the Middle East. And so I've got to be really careful here. Uh, but I will say this. Some people would ask him, are you not afraid to die? It's the fifth most persecuted church in the world. Are you not afraid to die? You know what he says? Can't kill a dead man. I'm already dead with Christ. Wow. And he said, death? I'm not afraid of death. What's that take? Two or three minutes? It's living for Christ. That's the hard part. And that's what I'm calling people to. To live for Jesus. Anybody can die for him. So you may be sitting here saying to yourself, Jesus couldn't have died for me. Pastor, you don't know what I've done. I don't really need to know what you've done. 
I know that your particular sin events aren't an issue anymore. Jesus has given you himself so that in the future, you don't have to trip over them. But in regard to your sin nature, he's dealt with that too. Not just with you. Don't put yourself up on this sin pedestal. Jesus has paid the price for sinfulness. The ongoing effects of all sin for all mankind. This isn't reduced down to just you. This is sinfulness itself. So whether it's the small things that trip you up individually or the huge things that hold you back from trusting Jesus completely, Jesus, as our advocate and as our propitiation, has handled them both. Is it possible for us to get done? Yes. Let's look at verse 3. I love verses 1 and 2. They're so comforting. Verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Apparently they were a lot more frank 2,000 years ago when they wrote letters of affection to their little dear children. (laughs) Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected or matures. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. There is not a book in the New Testament that is more a pamphlet or a tract on assurance of salvation than John. It's the reason John writes, so that we may know. In fact, to know something in the book of 1 John is found 40 times. This is the first time. 40 times in just a couple of small chapters. To know, to know, to know, to know. It's a book of assurances. But there is a really small hidden nugget here. I want to give you at least one more today. Two words that are translated into English to know. The first one is oida. It's something that we learn by uh, perception, like to love. We just learn that by perception. But there is a, another word called gnosko, which means to learn by experiential knowledge to to actually learn like you learn math or you learn by processing something personally right so in this verse 3 both usages of the word know are gnosko experiential but while they are used experiential knowledge the first instance please don't get lost on this because this is so important so important to understand how this process works The first instance is present tense, which means that it's got a beginning and it's always true. It's always true from now on. It's always in the present present tense. So we are continuing to know. We are in the process of knowing. The knowing never stops. The understanding never, never stops. The learning never stops. What are we knowing, though, in this verse? What do we know? We know that we know him. We know that we know him. But the second use is actually in perfect tense, which means that it is a completed action. It's already accomplished. So what John is saying is that walking with Jesus is important, not a prayer event. Not I prayed a certain prayer and said certain words. But we are in the process of learning, the process of knowing that we have known him. That there was a moment in our life that we recognized who Jesus is. And from that moment all the way on, we're in the process of learning newness and freshness about Jesus. On and there's never a time where we don't learn more about the assurance that we have with our salvation. It's not a checkbox is what John is saying. There's not a moment in time, but we're constantly reminded of the freshness of Jesus Christ. And there are so many stale Christians who are trusting in a prayer, but they're not walking with Jesus. And you say you're walking with Jesus, but if you're not living for Jesus, if you're not truly living for him, you're a liar. If you claim to be in Christ or to know him, 
You're lying to yourself, to your loved ones, to your church, but ultimately you're lying to God because to be in Christ is to live as Christ lived, it's to trust him as your advocate, to allow him to come alongside you in every moment, to obey him, not just to affirm him. Jesus doesn't need our affirmation. Don't miss what he's saying here. He says, by this, by what? By keeping his commandments, are we knowing that we have completed action of knowing him? Only by our obedience can we be assured that we are a Christ follower. So we've got to take that in its totality, right? Only when we are obedient to his commands. Only when we're obedient to his commands are we a Christ follower. Can we know with certainty and have assurance of our salvation? And only when we have the assurance of our salvation will we see the sufficiency of Jesus and beyond the sufficiency of Jesus, the advocacy of Jesus. So John introduces us to two types of people and then we'll be done. Verse four, he introduces us to the talker and to the walker. The talker and the walker. Verse four, whoever says, I know him. I don't know if they're that excited, but whoever says, I know him. I don't know why I hear Will Ferrell's voice uh, when I say it, some of you are smiling. I know you heard it too. I know him. Who would think Will Ferrell would show up in a sermon like this? There were a lot of catchphrases 2,000 years ago. People say a lot of things. They would say, this is one of the things they would say. Is, uh, oh, yeah, I know him. Jesus, I know him. And they would claim like this loyalty to somebody. And, and so this is one of the things that John's trying to get in the way of. Is you, Anybody can say that. But if you're going to say you know him, it's got to mean more than that. You're in the process of knowing him. You're in the process of learning him. You're in the process. Here's how you know you're in the process. Your life begins to look more and more like him. I know this is a hard message, and we're all learning this. We're all learning it. We're learning it together. But whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. This person that John is talking about is the one who professes to be a Christian, claims to be a Christian, values knowledge about Jesus at the expense of obedience to Jesus. You know, some, somebody who substitutes a head knowledge for a heart knowledge. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your... That's a really big and. It's one of the biggest ands in all the scripture. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what is the uh, result? You will be saved. So there is a head knowledge and there is a heart knowledge. A head knowledge knows about Jesus. A heart knowledge feels about Jesus. Both of those are dangerous by themselves. To know something without acting upon it, what difference does it make? You might be good at Bible trivia. But to feel something without having it stuck to a truth is also dangerous because how could you possibly navigate what is right and what is wrong? You're stuck following your feelings or your emotions. But to be transformed by Jesus, you need both of those, knowledge and feeling. And combined together, listen to this, confession with the mouth, believing in the heart, combined together equals obedience. Head knowledge, a heart knowledge, is obedience. Which John and Jesus is telling us is required to be assured of salvation. So you begin to see Jesus' part is to alleviate the besetting sins and sinfulness from those who follow him. But you have a responsibility as well. In response to his sufficiency... We must be obedient to what he teaches. So that's why John moves beyond the talker to the walker. And you get 
By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Verses 5 and 6, whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. These are really strong action words. We keep. Whoever keeps, we ought to walk. In James 2, he says, show me your faith. I'll show you my faith by my works. John says a very similar thing here. Show me your faith through obedience to Jesus' commands. And these are the good works that James is referring to. The works that reveal Christ-likeness. Not just good things that we do, but the Jesus things we do. I want us to go over to Matthew chapter 28 for a moment. Verses 19 and 20. I think it may be up here. I'm not sure. Is it? Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Almost done. I know, I know we're, I'm sweating. I don't know if you're sweating or not. Anybody else sweating? <clears throat> All right, well, well, we'll just be done in a few minutes then. Verse 19 says, Jesus says to his disciples just before his ascension, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. One more little, one more little nugget here, okay? Be patient one more time. There are four verbs in the Great Commission. Four verbs. Go. Make disciples, baptize, and teach. Right, four verbs. Now, I want to show you something that you may miss in English. There's only one main verb out of these four. One main verb. All the other verbs are participles. Participles, present participles to be accurate. Go, present participle. It means as you are going, always be going. As you are walking, as you are living your life, make disciples. That's the only main verb in these two verses. Make disciples. Baptizing, present participle. Make sure people are always in the body in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is not me constantly baptizing people. This is about identity in Christ. And teaching them, present participle. It's ongoing action from now on. It's ongoing. But going, baptizing, teaching them all belong to making disciples. This process of making disciples, which Jesus gives us as a last command, is summed up in this learning process, this teaching them to what? Teaching them Bible lessons, teaching them stories about the Old Testament, teaching them that a man can be swallowed by a great fish, teaching them all sorts of stories, uh, great global flood stories. All those are true, by the way, but is that what Jesus says teach them? Teach them what? Everything I have commanded you. We call ourselves a disciple of Jesus Christ. The requirement of being a disciple of Jesus Christ is obeying the commands of Christ and teaching others to obey the commandments of Christ. It's obedience. It's the assurance of our salvation is found in our obedience. Obedience to everything Jesus taught. Not prayer, not baptism. Obedience is the litmus test for our faith. Now, we know what the lawyer came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with everything you have, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, this fulfills what? The law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets. Every other command can be fulfilled by the law of love God and love each other. How you love. Let me tell you something. You're going to have a hard time loving people if you're not experiencing the love of the Father. It's out of the love of the Father that flows all other loves. But how could we possibly understand that kind of love if we don't recognize that Jesus is the sacrifice that restores a relationship with the Father and that he is our advocate coming alongside of us in every moment, every darkness, Jesus is beside us. I 
I believe that John caps this particular teaching off with verse 6, to walk in the same way in which he walked. Jesus is our righteous advocate. He has removed God's wrath from you, but he's also our example. You ever see these, uh, I don't see them as much anymore, these bracelets or idea of what would Jesus do, WWJD on everything. That's a great idea. But somewhere or another, it, it, causes, it causes us to like predict what Jesus would do in any given circumstances. But I think what Christians ought to do is what did Jesus do? How did Jesus love? How did Jesus serve? How did Jesus pray? How did Jesus shine a light on the glory of his Father? Philippians 2 talks about Jesus' humility where he calls Christians to unity, to service, to meekness. We think of Paul's invitation in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, be imitators of me. (laughs) How, How arrogant. Be imitators of me. Oh, wait, there's a comma. As I am of Christ. I'm no no Apostle Paul. Sure you are. Of course you are. Because it's the same Jesus who is his advocate, who is his propitiation, who is his example, exactly the same relationship that he has with every one of us. I wonder if we looked at the world and said, follow me as I follow Christ. Be imitators of me. You want to know what it looks like to be a Christian? Watch me. Because I've got my eyes on Jesus. It's no wonder the world calls us hypocrites. It's no wonder our marriages aren't going the right direction. It's no wonder our children are veering in a wrong direction. It's no wonder our politics are going in a wrong direction. In fact, I think Christians ought to be praying more and more. Even so, come Lord Jesus, bail us out. But it's all bailed out when those who claim to be in Christ walk as he walked. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your gentleness this morning. I thank you that you put every one of us all on the same page in the same group. We are desperate for you. So I pray this morning you would remind us of your faithfulness. Whatever sin we've committed that we, that we live in guilt or shame over, whatever distance we allow to be created that we blame you for, today, Lord, I pray that we would recognize that it's our accuser that keeps us there. Whatever sins we keep tripping over, whatever things it may be, or maybe even just our nature itself, maybe we've just given up and we've said, that's just who I am. Lord, I pray today that we would be able to see the glory of Jesus break through all of those things. And may we not... continually miss that to to hit the mark is to walk with Jesus. I pray that we would stop demanding mercy for ourselves and justice for everyone else. I pray that we would all recognize our guilt, that we'd all recognize that you lift our heads and say sin no more but if we do sin you're right there so Lord I pray that as we go forward into holiness I pray that we would be quicker and quicker to recognize sin in our life will you stand with me please This morning, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, I want to ask you to please come and let's pray together. Let's begin a new life. Maybe you're already a Christian, but you know that you're not walking with Jesus. Maybe there was a time in your life when you were, but now you know you're just kind of going through the motions. Maybe you're here this morning and you're afraid of being found out. 
whatever the case may be, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you today, I ask you, would you come? Let's pray together. Let's find, let's find freedom together. Let's trust Jesus together. I want to leave you with a verse this morning. Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all. And those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Father, thank you for who you are. We ask your blessing on us, Lord. We ask you to continue to speak to lives. Continue to speak to minds. Continue to speak to hearts. Thank you for lighting upon us and sticking with us, helping us cling. Thank you for your defense. We have none, but we claim Jesus. We know one day, Lord, when you when you come again, you will serve as our judge and you know everything. I'd much rather have you as an advocate than a judge. So thank you for your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.